My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am here with Craig Hoover, and we are going to talk about a lot of interesting topics today, um, ending on the international wildlife trade and snake skin trade in particular. So I remember when I was a child and I was uh, you know, had, had wildlife books and was really getting kind of uh, engaged and engulfed into this, this whole natural world. I can still see this picture, and I, I wish I could track it down, but there's a picture in my mind uh, of some people working in the tropical region of the world. I believe it was probably Asia somewhere, possibly Africa, but I believe it was Asia. And um, they had some large snakes, again, likely pythons, and they had the skins all stretched out. And I was always fascinated by that. Um, but even to today, I actually know very little about it. I will say that I have become involved, uh, you know, in terms of, of combating or conservation work related to the skin trade here in the United States. In that, uh, in the Southeast, there's a phenomena called these rattlesnake roundups, and uh, you know, when I started with the Orient Society, there were still three roundups, uh, two in Georgia and one in Alabama. And we were one of a broad partnership of people that converted the largest of those remaining three to a wildlife festival. And what that means is that historically, all of these uh, primarily eastern diamondback rattlesnakes were caught in the wild. And then they were brought to these festivals. And at the end of the festival, all of those snakes were killed and sold to a particular uh, skin dealer. And uh, so we changed that to a wildlife festival where now the public still goes. They still see um, all these animals have this great wildlife interaction type experience. But all of those animals are captively held and maintained animals um, as opposed to animals that are being taken out of the wild. So that's my my small experience trying to make the world a better place relative uh, to the skin trade. But again, it's, it's an area that I know uh, very little about. So I'm excited to talk to Craig today and learn more. Thank you for joining us, Craig. How are you today? Great, Chris. It's uh, great to be with you and great to be uh, spending some time talking about snakes. Yeah, good. Well, we, uh, you know, I, I gave just a little bit of an introduction to what we're going to talk about, but I'd love uh, for you to give our, our audience an introduction to yourself. So what are you doing these days? Um, what, what seat are you sitting in? What job are you doing? And how does it relate to snakes? Right. So um, I am currently the executive vice president at the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And it's a it's a position that I um, moved into about a year ago after a, a 20 plus year um, career with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and um, and uh, almost a 30 year career uh, working in international conservation, including 
uh, looking at the reptile trade and how to more effectively regulate this this uh, snake trade, the skin trade, etc. So a, a long history and career of working in international wildlife conservation and wildlife policy, and I'd, I'd be happy to to delve into that a bit further with you. Yeah, we, we certainly will. Uh, so obviously, you've dedicated a, a huge portion of your life to to you know, wildlife conservation in, in one form or another. So uh, one thing I like to ask people is, is where did it all begin? And at first, I guess, from a general wildlife perspective, but I'd also be curious uh, to hear where it began from a, a reptile or a snake perspective. And, you know, is what's kind of your story there? Did you grow up as a child fascinated? Is it something you picked up later in life? Yeah, I am. I am. I think one of those rare examples of someone who pretty much knew what they wanted to do before they even left elementary school. Um, I grew up in in Southeast Michigan, uh, about forty miles from Detroit, but in the in the suburbs. And I grew up on a lake called Lake St. Clair, which is a, a lake that connects two of the Great Lakes, Lake Huron and Lake Erie. And uh, literally grew up on the lake in the sense that I could walk out into my backyard and and spend my time fishing and swimming and um, grew up in a family that hunted and fished and uh, spent a lot of my time roaming the, the woods and fields, collecting frogs and snakes, walking the ditches along the roads to collect garter snakes and bring back a bucket of garter snakes um, to show my mom who would wondered why I was in fact doing something like that. <laughs> but um, I was fascinated with wildlife and, and wild places from a very young age and uh, was fortunate to um, know exactly what I wanted to do before I really even had a chance to do it. And so I have been very fortunate to um, turn my fascination with wildlife into a career working on uh, wildlife conservation. Yeah, you mentioned your your mother. So I, I, there's a lot of interesting stories relative to families, and uh, you know, so was your family generally pretty supportive of this career track, or were they trying to steer you towards insurance or something else? <laughs> <laughs> no, they were they were supportive, not necessarily uh, understanding or sharing my passion for it. Although, um, as I said, my I did grow up in a, a family of um, hunters and and uh, fishermen, particularly on my mother's side, my uncles and and uh, grandfather. And so I was um, immersed in um, in hunting and fishing and and uh, wildlife and uh, boating from from a very young age, and and so my passion started at, at a very young age, and I was fortunate to have a family that um, supported that passion um, as I moved uh, to college and then into a career. That's that's great. I grew up in a very similar situation where you know, kind of an outdoors family, you know, hunting and fishing, going to hunting camp each year. And um, I still am a very avid hunter. And we're going to talk about uh, a lot of uh, hunting related things relative to snakes today. And I always like to make the distinction when I talk to people, because people look at what I do, loving snakes and, and oftentimes advocating to have them not killed, but then going out and killing so many other animals. I certainly make a distinction between hunting in a regulated science-based, uh, you know, kind of framework and what I call is poaching as opposed to hunting. When people are killing things that are, are not legal, um, there isn't a science-based uh, management program around them. But, but we may talk about that a little bit later. But I like to make that distinction um, especially where we're probably going to be talking, using the word hunting quite a bit. So it's interesting that it's um, part of your background. So 
so you you had this interest. You grew up outdoors on this lake, and and your family was was um, confused but supportive. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so how, where did you go from there? So you're you know obviously you finished high school. It sounds like in in this region, and then um, you know what were your thoughts? How do you make this interest in this handful of garter snakes and uh, turtles and everything else you were probably seeing in that region? How, how did you turn that into reality uh, in terms of school? Yeah, uh, happy happy to lay that out for you, and um, and certainly that what my vision of working in wildlife conservation was, and what I actually ended up doing, turned out to be very different things. Because certainly, as uh, uh, an elementary school student and a high school student, my vision was being in a, out in the middle of a national park or a wildlife refuge, and in in the wild and and interacting with wildlife on a daily basis. And I ended up going in, in quite a different direction. I'm, I'm happy to explain how that, how that happened. But it, it really started when I was at the University of Michigan and studying in the School of Natural Resources. And um, I had the opportunity to volunteer at a Fish and Wildlife Service office there in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it happened to be the Fish and Wildlife Service Law Enforcement Office. And uh, I had not contemplated working in the wildlife law enforcement field at all, but um, had this opportunity to spend time in the law enforcement office. And the Fish and Wildlife Service um, Office of Law Enforcement really is is basically two positions. One is um, what are called wildlife special agents who do uh, are their plainclothes um, officers with arrest authority, and they do undercover work, and um, they enforce federal wildlife laws. And then they have uniformed um, inspectors, wildlife inspectors, who work primarily at our ports of entry and exit, regulating the import and export of wildlife. And, and I had the good fortune to volunteer while I was still in college, and I spent time basically doing evidence um, custodian work. And that is tracking the evidence, seized wildlife, um, the property, you know, filling out reports and uh, maintaining chain of custody, that sort of thing. And I spent, I spent two years doing that. And um, had the good fortune after I graduated to parlay that um, volunteer experience into a very sweet evidence custodian position that paid about $14,000 a year at the time. <laughs> um, and that was really my first job in the, in the real job in, in the wildlife arena. And again, it was basically being responsible for maintaining the evidence associated with wildlife and investigations and seizures and confiscations. And I did that for a year and then um, took a position in Los Angeles as a wildlife inspector. Um, again, that, it's a uniformed position. Um, uh, the wildlife inspectors don't carry a firearm, but they, they are essentially customs officers for wildlife trade. And Is so, this a Fish and Wildlife Service position? or It's a Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement position. And I worked in Los Angeles where um, Los Angeles International Airport and the two ocean cargo ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach uh, really comprised the largest point of import and export of wildlife in the country and probably one of the largest in the world. And so I was a first line um, law enforcement officer regulating the import and export of live wildlife and wildlife products and enforcing um, the Endangered Species Act and the Lacey Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and a variety of other wildlife laws that are really meant to ensure that wildlife trade is conducted legally and sustainably and is not negatively impacting wild populations. And so I saw the most bizarre 
and fascinating um, uh, things in the wildlife trade, both legal and illegal, uh, people smuggling wildlife. Um, the enormous um, scale of the wildlife trade is really astonishing um, and, and hard to wrap your head around until you see it in person. And I was able to do that for about five years. So let's take just a quick aside. I cannot yeah. leave that. So tell anything you, maybe there are certain things you can't talk about, but um, give us just maybe two examples of some of the very extreme um, kind of wildlife trade experiences you had, maybe things that you saw. Yeah. I'd just be curious for that to hear that. Yeah, I, I would. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is just to to understand the sheer enormity of wildlife trade, and um, what I'm talking about is um, just the volume and the scope and scale of it in terms of the the number of species, the 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 volume in terms of number of specimens. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of animals or animal products in a single shipment. And I would see dozens of shipments every day. Um, and those are, those are wildlife products coming into and going out of the country. The United States is primarily a consumer, but also um, a supplier as well. And so it could be 10,000 red-eared sliders headed to China um, to supply turtle farms and the turtle trade, or it could be um, an ocean cargo container of 10,000 pairs of ladies' shoes that are made of um, uh, Tyus mucosus whip snake. Um, and so that's, that's the, the primarily legal side of things. And then on the illegal side, it's you know, the, the creative ways that people um, smuggled wildlife. And, and two examples that come immediately to mind are one of a man who attempted to smuggle a live toucan into the country by taping it to the small of his back under oh, his shirt. Um, and so that's the kind of um, thing that really has a negative impact on, on wildlife populations, just the, the way that people smuggle um, wildlife to try to keep it concealed from being detected. And uh, in that case, he was detected and uh, we were able to confiscate that, that toucan. Another example is a man who attempted to smuggle out about 30 live reptiles all on his body, um, where he had individual snakes um, tied up in ladies' nylon. So you, you drop, you know, drop a king snake into the, um, the leg of the nylon, tie it off, drop another one in, tie it off so that it almost looked like a, a string of pearls. And he had those around his ankles and around his wrists, and he had them in the lining of his coat, and around his waist, and uh, we ended up confiscating about 30 live reptiles uh, off of him. Um, his mistake being that he was in Los Angeles in the middle of the summer and wearing a trench coat, which, you know, raised a little bit of suspicion. So. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so, well, thank you for going down that that rabbit sure. hole with me, because that was, that was fascinating. The other thing I wanted to ask you relative to your uh, you know, your, your position there in Los Angeles. Um, so I've, I had heard that, that um, Los Angeles was one of the primary kind of ports of entry and exit for wildlife in the, in the U S at least. Are there others that are kind of stand out just 
in the, in the country here that are our primary import and export type places? Yeah, the other the other really large ports would certainly would be Miami, particularly for trade with Latin America, um, and okay. New York, uh, particularly for trade with Europe and Africa. Um, Miami, uh, much more known for the um, the scale of the live animal trade. Uh, New York would be much more known for the products trade, particularly the leather trade. And Los Angeles, obviously, is primarily a hub for Asia as well as to some extent for Latin America. Yeah, great. Um, well, we're, I want to keep going with your career, but yep. uh, but I do want to put a placeholder on something else you said relative to turtles and talking about mm-hmm. uh, the turtle crisis and, and those animals going to China. We've been I've been very involved here in the Southeast and um, working with states to change regulations uh, in terms of, of how turtles can be harvested. So, but we'll, we'll circle back to that later when we, we dive deeper into international trade. So, so you're in Los Angeles, um, you know, working uh, in law enforcement essentially. And, and so where did you go from there? Yeah, so I, I got a call one day from an organization called Traffic, which is the wildlife trade monitoring program of World Wildlife Fund. Um, and the Traffic North America office is based in Washington, D.C., and they had a position open and, and offered it to me. And so I'm, I left government service um, at the time and moved to, um, to D.C. and um, joined World Wildlife Fund and worked for eight years um, for traffic. And basically what that job was was monitoring uh, wildlife trade, um, doing uh, investigative studies into particular areas of wildlife trade. And I actually did quite a bit of work on the live reptile trade at that time and then making recommendations to governments about how they can improve regulation of wildlife trade. And so that was a, that was a job I did for eight years. Um, and then I came back to government service again, got a, got a phone call and um, had the opportunity to come back to the um, headquarters office of the fish and wildlife service again in law enforcement. And I had the opportunity to be the first ever supervisor of the law enforcement intelligence unit. And so that was, a job essentially um, supervising intelligence analysts who supported those field agents and inspectors um, in their criminal investigative work. Um, and that it, that included, again, investigating um, areas of um, illegal wildlife uh, trade and other activities that maybe needed more law enforcement attention, helping to guide where law enforcement goes in the future, as well as supporting those uh, those field agent, field agents and doing things like criminal history checks and analyzing phone records and um, you know emails from um, that, that had been obtained from um, from people who had been arrested, you know, things things like that. Uh, that's interesting. So um, maybe intuitive, but I, I guess I wouldn't have thought too deep about it. And, and I guess a lot of our um, audience probably wouldn't either. But um, so Fish and Wildlife Service has a, a very complex intelligence structure. We're just not physically trying to catch people at the border. We're trying to catch people um, before they come through the gates, if you will, or, or um, you know, try, try to learn about them remotely to, to make these busts. That's that's fascinating. So. Um, obviously that's, that's ongoing today. Um, and, and I don't, again, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but, um, at, at scale, I mean, is this something that has a global scale and we being our government is working around the country to, uh, you know, to really try to stop this, uh, this wildlife trade? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and really, the only way to effectively address um, international wildlife trade is to work internationally. And so that includes building partnerships with other governments, uh, with enforcement um, officials in other countries. And the, the Fish and Wildlife Service is a global leader in wildlife law enforcement and has done a great deal of work to professionalize wildlife law enforcement, not only here, but around the world. And Though um, though we didn't have them at the time I was in this position um, in the intelligence unit, we now actually have uh, Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement attaches based in other countries um, to, again, increase that collaboration and that uh, build capacity in other countries because we, we can't solve the problem of wildlife trafficking globally um, by just tackling it here in the United States. We have to work collaboratively internationally. And so, um, so there's, a, there's a really great effort to do that now. That makes so much sense. And it must be incredibly complex because there's so many countries, so many just from the, the wildlife side, there's so many different types of wildlife. There's so many uh, different types of governments with different regulations. Uh, it's going to be very complex, but um, I'm glad it's something that we as a country are working on. Uh, together, so you, so you're at the Fish and Wildlife Service, and and you're uh, working uh, in the uh, the international conservation arena. Um, and how did you? I'm guessing you got a call, <laughs> but how did you end up got, going from yeah, there turn, to where you are today? Turns out, I got a call. I got a call, and uh, there was a there was an opening in the um, international affairs program of the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is more uh, the policy and financial assistance side of things, and. And throughout my career, because I had been working in international conservation, much of that effort had been with regard to an international treaty called the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES. And so I'd had a lot of experience with um, working on this international treaty, um, both um, from a law enforcement uh, standpoint, enforcing it, enforcing the provisions of CITES in the United States, as well as from a policy standpoint, particularly when I was working at World Wildlife Fund. And so I guess in some ways, the natural progression of my career was to move over to the policy side. And I, um, I ran, uh, initially ran um, a branch in the what's called the Division of Management Authority, which is the CITES permitting office for the U.S. Uh, government. Um, and I ran a branch called the Wildlife Trade and Conservation Branch, where we did, again, international wildlife trade policy work uh, to improve how CITES and other um, laws and agreements are implemented here in the United States um, and around the world. And so I, I did that for about eight years and then eventually became the head of the CITES Management Authority for the Fish and Wildlife Service, where I oversaw all aspects of CITES implementation, uh, permitting, um, and the policy side of things as well. And I did that for about three years. And then the last position I held in the Fish and Wildlife Service was um, in what's called the Division of International Conservation. And that is a financial assistance um, um, program where um, that, that office implements a variety of different financial assistance programs around the world. This is foreign assistance to provide money to um, organizations and governments to do field conservation work. And that includes implementing um, laws like the um, Rhino and Tiger Conservation Act and the Asian Elephant Conservation Act and the African Elephant Conservation Act and um, an, a financial assistance program called this um, Central Africa Regional Program for the Environment, where we provided 
financial resources to do guerrilla conservation work in, in Central Africa or to support governments and, and again, being more effective at combating wildlife trafficking. And, and so we, um, that, that's about a $40 million a year um, financial assistance programs um, run out of the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so it was a fantastic opportunity to see how um, U.S. resources can change conservation for the better on the ground around the world. Um, and um, it was also an opportunity to see some of those projects, and it, which was really um, uh, invigorating and rejuvenating for me to see on the ground how that conservation work is happening. Because I, as I said, as, as I started my career, I expected to be working out in the field and, uh, you know, interacting with wildlife. And instead, what I have done is worked in the conference rooms and inter international conventions and uh, large uh, convention centers and, you know, sitting behind a com computer. Because ultimately, I decided and determined that Though personally, I might like it more to be at a wildlife refuge or um, at a national park, I found that I was most effective um, and really brought um, my strengths to bear um, working um, in those convention centers and conference rooms, et cetera, and that my skills and abilities were really more about negotiation and diplomacy than about, um, you know, l uh, measuring uh, wood duck populations in central New Jersey at Great Swamp National Wildlife Refuge, something like that. Yeah, and all those positions are important. Certainly that that person counting wood ducks or or measuring garter snakes, critically important to, to wildlife conservation. But um, if you have the skill sets that that you know you you have obviously have it, um, you know, the the way you can scale up and have such a, a broader impact on the world, I think is is a pretty uh, powerful thing. So um, before we get into I want to talk about the AZA a little mm -hmm. bit where you currently are. But before we leave that kind of timeline, uh, you know, of your time working uh, for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Traffic, World Wildlife Fund, uh, given that, that we're talking, we're going to talk about snakes here and the skin trade in particular, uh, what were some, did you see a lot of snake activity throughout your career? You already mentioned uh, this person, you know, piling up king snakes in, in nylon socks, but um, how would you, how would you rate snakes in the overall, uh, you know, international wildlife trade as you experienced it through, through all those positions? Yeah, um, snakes featured pretty predominantly, um, as did the reptile trade more broadly. But um, certainly um, working as a wildlife inspector, I saw um, tremendous numbers of, of snakes coming into the country from Southeast Asia. Indonesia is a big supplier of the pet trade. Um, uh, West Africa, um, snakes coming out of West Africa and Central Africa. Um, to supply the pet trade. And then the thing that probably was more surprising to me was how snakes are utilized um, as other than for the pet trade, the skin trade, um, and just the sheer scope and scale of the skin trade and the number of species involved in it. And again, we're talking about everything from women's shoes to handbags to cowboy boots to um, belts to hat bands, um, just an enormous array of uses. And then also um, things that I never would have expected, like the use of um, snake parts in um, traditional medicine. 
and the the trade, both the legal trade and the illegal trade in um, whole snakes and and snake parts and products for for uses like like traditional medicine and other uses that I would not have anticipated. And uh, certainly we see that as a threat to um, snakes and the and snake populations around the world. I just wanted to take a break and uh, tell you guys, if you care about snakes, wildlife, or wild places, and you like what you're hearing on this podcast, go to www.orian.org now to make a difference. So reptiles and snakes are playing a predominant role uh, in this in this trade issue. So um, we'll get back to talking about wildlife trade more broadly and, and relative to snakes specifically. But so you you've gone through that portion of your career and then you you landed where you are today. Uh, Association of Zoos and Aquariums. This is a, a, a an organization that that I know well. Um, I've been to the conference and spoken at the conference multiple times, and I've uh, you know used to run and still own a AZA accredited facility. Um, I've had staff members who, you know, coordinated stud books. And uh, so I'm very familiar with the organization and I see it um, as critical uh, in the conservation equation of snakes, if you will, because uh, it, it just plays such a role uh, relative to zoos and aquariums um, all around uh, the country. And uh, these zoos are playing major roles in, in snake conservation. So uh, we won't spend too much time on it, but but what is, uh, for our audience, you know, what is AZA. How would you kind of describe it at, at the highest level and, and what, what the mission and the, the vision and the core values and approach? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and yeah, that last step in my, my career was um, to take an early retirement from the Fish and Wildlife Service and move over to this position at the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which I did about a year ago. And the current um, president and CEO of the of Zeus, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums is Dan Ash, and he's the former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So, to continue the theme of my career, I got a call, and um, and so I made this move over to the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And and so what AZA is is it's a member organization. Um, it's a nonprofit organization, and it's dedicated to the advancement of zoos and aquariums in the areas of conservation, education, science, and, and recreation. And we have 240 zoo and aquarium members in the United States and in 13 other countries. And so we are, we are predominantly um, a U.S.-based organization, but we actually have um, more than 10% of our membership is is international members. And I, so, I didn't realize that that part of it. And is it uh, geographically, is that primarily in certain regions, Europe, say, or, or other places, or is it really widespread around the world? Yeah, historically, it's been um, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. And we have six members in, in Canada. We have a handful of members in Mexico. But our biggest area of growth has been um, over, overseas. And so we yeah. just added um, two members in South Korea recently. Uh, We added a member in the UAE uh, recently. 
And um, we are continuing to see growth in that area because these these um, gold standard facilities around the world see AZA as the gold standard in terms of a member organization. And so we're getting increasing interest um, in joining. And so these 240 members that we have, these facilities, they, they see 200 million visitors every year. And so there's really tremendous opportunity to educate the public about what we do. And our 240 members include the larger zoos and aquariums that come to mind for many people, such as Georgia Aquarium or Disney's Animal Kingdom or the San Diego Zoo, but also smaller facilities such as the Good Zoo in Wheeling, West Virginia, or the Western uh, North Carolina Nature Center. Um, so we we see a, the, the, a broad spectrum of, of facilities, but what all these facilities have in common is that they are uh, among the best in the world because they're able to meet our, our rigid accreditation standards. And, and as I mentioned, we have, um, we have uh, members in Canada and Mexico as well, but also Spain, Colombia, um, Tamayacan Bioreserve in Argentina, which I had the opportunity to visit last year, which is an amazing facility just outside Buenos Aires. And so we're seeing this increasing um, growth in our, in our international members. And, you know, at the highest level, what I would say about AZA is that um, our members are leaders in animal care and welfare. Um, and that is measured through our very stringent accreditation program, which, which looks at all aspects of um, running an effective, high-quality zoo um, or aquarium. And so these, these facilities are really leaders in the world. Um, we're also leaders in conservation. Uh, every year, our members' zoos and aquariums um, put well over $200 million into field conservation around the world. Um, the most recent year for which we have data, it was about $232 million of field conservation work benefiting uh, more than 800 species and supporting projects in 130 countries. And so we're not just facilities that the, uh, that the public comes to visit. We're also conservation organizations that are committed to uh, protecting and conserving um, endangered and threatened species around the world. Our signature um, conservation program is something we call AZA SAFE, which stands for Saving Animals from Extinction. And that is a way of harnessing the, again, the AZA accredited zoo and aquarium community to focus on, on conservation science, um, provide wildlife expertise, and conduct outreach to millions, millions of people um, every year. Um, one aspect of, of AZA that I, I suspect you're familiar with is our species survival plans. And um, that program is a, is a cooperative animal management, breeding, and conservation effort that works to ensure that we have genetically diverse, self-sustaining populations uh, for more than 500 species of animals that are covered by our SSPs. And then lastly, I'd, I'd say that AZA is, um, is a leader and our members are leaders in conservation education. Um, we, um, we educate more than 50 million visitors um, per year um, that are children, uh, making accredited zoos and aquariums essential to science and, and environmental education. Uh, we train uh, 40,000 plus teachers every year supporting state science curricula. 
with teaching materials and hands-on opportunities for students who might otherwise have no firsthand experience with wildlife. And, and as you know firsthand, there's a big difference between learning something through, through a textbook or in a classroom and being able to be, to be hands-on and um, proximate to wildlife while you're learning about wildlife. And, and we believe and we have data to support the notion that um, we are uniquely positioned to educate because people learn more when about snakes when they're there in the presence of snakes. They learn more about rhinos when they're there in the presence of rhinos. And so, um, so that in a, in a nutshell is, is uh, AZA and, and what AZA does and what we represent. Yeah. And the whole, uh, you know, AZA and the whole zoo and aquarium community. I mean, obviously the, the, the part that everybody recognizes um, and is really important is the education component. People, you know, huge segment of the population of the U.S. And, and countries around the world are going to these facilities. They're learning about these animals in hands-on situations or eyes-on, at least, um, uh, as you mentioned. And that that is really important. But I, I do like that you, you really highlighted um, a lot of the components that a, most visitors probably don't realize. I think a lot of zoos are getting better at educating and communicating, uh, you know, the kind of uh, in the field conservation work, the conservation work behind the scenes, if you will. But um, everybody should know most zoos um, and aquariums have relatively large uh, conservation programs, whether they're behind the scenes breeding programs for species that are um, endangered, uh, reintroduction programs, field programs. So Zoos and aquariums are, again, I've already said it, but really important in the, the whole uh, conservation equation. And AZA is the entity that, that pulls all of that together and provides those sidebars, those best management practices, those, those standards, uh, those accreditation, those, those credentials. Uh, so it, it's just a really uh, important kind of galvanizing uh, organization in my mind that helps all of the zoos and aquariums around the world work together kind of in concert towards the same uh, mission, if you will. I don't know if, if, if that s summarized <laughs> or was an accurate statement, but that, from my perspective, um, I do think AZA is really important. Yeah, well, that, that is well said, and I agree with everything you said. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, so... Uh, Maybe before we get back to international trade, mm -hmm. let's let's talk a little bit about snakes in the zoo and uh, aquarium world. Um, obviously, snakes, as you mentioned, uh, oh, well, for let me back up and say that the reptile house, in, in quotes, at, at any zoo or aquarium, uh, is is usually one of the more popular parts uh, of any zoo, um, and and there's also unique opportunities in that. Um, you know, unlike most rhinos, uh, you know, you can put a snake into somebody's hand. So there's opportunities for other educational programs that can be very uh, transformative. So um, talk a little bit about AZA relative to, to snakes, zoos relative to snakes, um, and the role of, of your uh, association and zoos in general in snake uh, research and conservation. Sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll start with the conservation 
part of it again. Um, and and again, one of the roles that AZA plays is to collect information from our members to tell tell the story of what zoos and aquariums are doing um, to have an impact on, on conservation and on ed- education. And so we're we're constantly collecting data. Um, from our from our members and and just last year we uh, fifty more than fifty of our members reported um, engaging in specific conservation efforts related to snakes and that that covered more than thirty species um, including native snake species such as the massasauga rattlesnake um, and the Louisiana pine snake um, including breeding efforts and reintroduction efforts for the Louisiana pine snake. Um, as well as doing conservation work associated with foreign species, such as the Armenian viper and the, the Cuban boa. And so our, our impact on snake conservation um, is, again, it's a global impact because we're working not just with native species that are at risk, but also um, foreign species where we are, again, engaging in, in breeding efforts and, and conservation act for efforts and supporting field conservation work for those species. Um, but also just looking at, at how our members um, operate and ensure that they have sustainable and, and genetically diverse populations. We have our um, taxon advisory groups and we have a, a, a snake taxon advisory group that um, is responsible for providing advice and guiding collection management at our zoos and aquariums. And so a TAG's main purpose is to examine the conservation and exhibition needs of the um, the entire group for which they're responsible. Um, and so the snake tag develops a regional collection plan and it makes breeding and transfer recommendations to ensure that we have genetically diverse and sustainable populations in our members' zoos and aquariums. And one, you know, one of the great things about um, AZA members being um, um, larger than each individual member is there, there's this collective effort um, and for example, with breeding and transfer plans, this is this these are recommendations that are given to individual members to move animals around um, to enhance breeding efforts, to ensure that we have genetically diverse populations, to ensure that the populations that we have are sustainable uh, in the long term, and so that we are not um, seeking out or needing to bring in animals from the wild to um, to maintain our populations. And so each tag um, consists of um, species survival plan coordinators, stud book keepers, as as you mentioned previously, um, institutional representatives and other individuals that have specialized expertise with regard to the particular area area that they're working on. And um, for AZA, among the the snake species that are in managed populations, um, those include the Aruba Island rattlesnake, the Louisiana pine snake, as I mentioned, the eastern Massasauga, um, the eastern indigo snake, uh, the Armenian viper, the Jamaican boa, the Mexican lance-headed rattlesnake, and, and the bushmaster. So for each of those species, we have specific plans to ensure the sustainability of those populations in our in our collections. And then as I talked about um, Previously, our signature conservation program is what we call AZA Safe for Saving Animals from Extinction. Um, again, which brings together diverse interests and expertise to partner for um, to save animals from extinction. And we we have we currently have 27 um, safe programs for for either an individual species or groups uh, of species. And one of those is um, is uh, dedicated to a particular snake species, and that's the the eastern indigo snake. 
And so through that program, we've uh, bolstered reintroduction efforts for the Eastern Indigo um, in Southern Alabama and in Northwest Florida. And uh, we're helping to restore a sustainable and healthy population um, that has, as you know, suffered from the destruction of the longleaf pine ecosystem. And so it's about, it's about habitat protection. It's about population monitoring. It's about putting snakes back into the wild. Yeah, that's great. And, and as you, you know, um, you know, that the facility I mentioned um, that our organization owns is the AZA accredited indigo snake breeding uh, facility for right. that reintroduction program. Um, and, and we have done a podcast on that, that program. Uh, we've also worked uh, quite a bit with Bushmap and snake as well. So, uh, Okay, I want to make before we transition back to the, the international wildlife trade, I want to make a broad statement so to our audience. And so the uh, these times we're in uh, with with COVID uh, and, and what's happening to the economy and what's happening to in-person type experiences are affecting a lot of sectors of, of business. And um, some of you may not have thought about it, but you can imagine that zoos and aquariums are, are one of the hardest hit sectors because they depend on these, for the most part, they depend on these in-person uh, experiences with people and oftentimes large groups of people. Um, so it can be a hard business, uh, you know, to do things such as maintain social distancing and those types of things. Uh, but there are uh, zoos that are that are working through that now. But my point is, my broad statement is that if you enjoy going to a zoo or an aquarium, you enjoy taking your children, your family there, um, I encourage you to to get involved uh, and, and, you know, support them if you can financially. That's a really uh, critical time for zoos and aquariums. And, you know, my fear is that especially some of these smaller ones are, are going to potentially close. So um, if, if there's something you care about in, in your world, in the zoo and aquarium uh, world, um, you know, I would encourage you to, to support them to make sure they're here as we work through this. So, uh, Craig, relative to that, that general statement, uh, that I just made. Um, I don't want to spend too much time, but I mean, uh, what are your general thoughts on, on you know, what the world's currently facing and uh, the future uh, of zoos and aquariums in the near term? Yeah, the pandemic has been devastating across the board for for businesses, for individuals, for families, um, and it has had a significant negative impact on our our members. Uh, at one point um, uh, in the in the pandemic, about 95% of our members were closed. At a time um, when we were, would normally be relying on spring break and, um, you know, the, the busiest time of year for most of our members ended up being a time where we were essentially completely closed. And zoos and aquariums rely on visitors uh, for revenue. And so our, our members have lost um, collectively hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue over this several month period. Um, and um, just as importantly, um, as I described, we have put um, hundreds of millions of dollars into field conservation and that field conservation work relies on, on revenue. 
And so we certainly expect that we will see a significant downturn in the amount of field conservation that we will be able to support. And so it's not only devastating for the individual zoos and aquariums and the people who work there, because many of them have been furloughed or, or laid off, um, but it also has this knock-on effect that it, it also undermines our ability to do the great conservation work that we're doing around the world. And Fortunately, we're we're um, we're on the road to recovery in the sense that um, most of our zoos and aquariums have been able to reopen in some capacity, but generally speaking, it has been in a very limited capacity. So I would I would echo your comment that you know please go out and support your your local zoo or aquarium. They need your help. They need your visitorship. Um, they need your support because it is going to be a long road to recovery and hopefully we will continue to stay on a positive track. And we are closely monitoring um, this, the status of our members, um, recognizing that unlike a museum, they can just close up and lock the doors. Um, we still have to take care of the animals that are in our care. And so we can't just turn off the lights and, and walk away for a month or two months or four months. Um, we have to continue to put resources into caring for the animals in our care. And we have done that very effectively. The animals in our care continue to be extremely well cared for. Welfare is is not a concern at this point, but um, things need to move, continue to move in a positive direction. Otherwise, it's going to be a very difficult uh, rest of 2020 and, and 2021. Yeah, thanks for that, Craig. As so international wildlife trade, um, you know, I, I, we just did a podcast that'll air here in a, in a few weeks on um, uh, snake bite treatment in, in rural third world country type parts of the world. And, and we described the, the, this as a global snake bite crisis um, and, and this disorganization that we talked with was dealing with it. So uh, how, how do you think about international wildlife trade to get that 30,000 foot level. I mean, is this a global um, crisis? Uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, I mean, uh, how do you describe the issue um, relative to the conservation of wildlife, the conservation of, of wild places? Where, where does this rank and, and how important um, is it? Yeah, it's a it's a um, it's a great area to to work in because it is extremely complex. Inter international wildlife trade is is very complex. The solutions are not easy. Um, there are some who just think, well, we should just ban it all, and and that will solve the problem. But uh, of course, there are other threats as well. And um, with um, trade, you also have the opportunity to provide value, and with value comes reasons for protection. And so um, it's, I, I think it's important to divide up um, wildlife trade into different compartments. One, um, it, one clear um, area of, of, of difference is the difference between wildlife trafficking or illegal wildlife trade and legal sustainable wildlife trade. And uh, those are those are um, those are very different things with very different drivers, and it's important certainly to to differentiate them and to um, combat illegal and unsustainable wildlife trade with everything uh, we can put toward it, while also ensuring that on the legal side that the laws are are effective. And that um, legal also goes along with being sustainable because um, legal unsustainable wildlife trade is just as bad or worse 
than illegal trade, um, because what we what we face is the possibility of losing populations in the wild, and so um, so we we need to focus on on all of those things, and and in some cases it really gets down to individual species or individual um, types of trade. Um, to look at um, what is actually potentially a benefit to wild populations and what is not. As you, as you well know, um, there are many, many, many people all over the world who see snake, the only good snake as being a dead snake. And, and so what can we do to make sure that live snakes and viable snake populations are seen as a good thing and I, and I would say that um, having a legal and sustainable trade is one potential way to do that. And so I think, uh, again, coming back to the notion that there's not just one easy answer here. There's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of investigation needed to determine, you know, what is in fact best for wild populations of snakes. So snakes within this this. Uh greater whole of the international wildlife trade. What are the main, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about the skin trade and I do want to talk about that more, but what are the main kind of vectors or reasons that snakes find themselves in this, this wildlife trade? Yeah, there are a lot of different demands for snakes. It's um, it, as as we talked about earlier, there the the array of uses is is a bit mind boggling. Certainly, one one big component of it is the pet trade. Um, there is um, there is certainly enormous demand not only in Europe and and the United States and other um, more developed countries, but also in developing countries for snakes as pets. Um, I think it is. I liken it to a bit to the the um, stamp collector mentality. Is there there are there's just some segment of the population that wants to have something that other people don't have, and snakes I think to some extent fit that bill. And so there are a lot of people who are fascinated by um, collecting and 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 maintaining snakes as pets. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. Um, because people uh, learn about them, there are certainly some snakes that are relatively easy to keep in in captivity. Um, but uh, again, the, the the devil is always in the details, and we have to look at okay, are these captive bred? Are they wild caught? Are they easy to maintain? Is the trade sustainable, etc.? And then um, moving away from the live trade, we have um, a couple of other significant trades. Certainly one is the skin trade, which uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about. And that's the, the demand for skins um, as shoes and handbags and briefcases and hat bands and wallets and belts, etc. Um, and then there's the, the demand for snakes as medicine and as meat. Um, and that's, that's a, a demand that I think is predominantly in, in East Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, for it, the uh, alleged curative effects of certain parts of snakes, snake blood and snake gallbladders, um, um, etc. And there is a significant um, trade in snakes for those kinds of parts and products that are used in medicine. And I have had the opportunity to spend some time in the the wet markets in in China to see again the scale of trade. Um, to supply the demand for snakes as um, as meat and medicine, and it is it, it truly it's staggering. 
Um, and, and these different demands are, are um, they, they are different demands for different species. You know, some, some species that are in demand for the skin trade are not the same species that are in demand for the live trade, which are not the same as what's in demand um, for, the, uh, for the medicinal trade. Yeah, so you, you mentioned China, and I know that with a lot of species that they have interest in, we talked about turtles um, in the southeastern U.S. here, for example. Um, the one approach China often takes is they import a lot of the animals they're interested in, and they develop these kind of uh, captive breeding or husbandry or, or animal farms so they can they can supply. Do you see this in China with snakes as well? I know it's certainly happening with some mammals and uh, Chinese giant salamanders and, uh, you know, turtles, but do you see this with snakes? Do they have large, say like Python farms, for example? Yeah, I think, I think there is some um, farming and production of snakes um, in China and in Asia. Although what I have seen um, often is um, that the the farming operations tend to be a front for what is really primarily a wild caught trade, um, and it's just animals moving through these facilities. Certainly, we've seen that with some of the the alleged captive production of pythons in Southeast Asia. That um, in many cases, it is really just a matter of laundering wild caught snakes through these facilities to claim them as bred in captivity. Um, un unlike, say, the turtle trade where I, I have seen firsthand really large-scale commercial captive production operations um, producing species found within Asia, as well as producing species like red-eared sliders, which are produced on a massive scale um, in China. Um, so I, th I think with snakes, it's, it's more wild-caught and, and certainly less captive production, particularly for the food and medicinal trade. Yeah, I mean, and why why do you think that's the case? Say the snake versus turtle example. Why not have relatively large scale breeding? I mean, obviously turtles are are kind of slow growing, low reproductive output animals that can take a long time to, you know, build up your farming to production. Um, I, I'm just curious why why you think there's that difference between say snakes and turtles. Yeah, I think it's probably a couple of different factors. One is just the ease of production. And I'm, it may be that for, for at least some of those snake species, they just haven't solved the, um, the challenge of large-scale um, domestic sort of captive production. Certainly we see that to some extent with the, with the pet trade, that there, there is large-scale um, captive breeding of, of certain species for pets. I just haven't seen it or strong evidence of it with regard to the, the food and medicinal trade in, in, in East Asia. Uh, whereas with turtles, I think they've just, they, they've figured it out a way to do it more on a commercial scale. Yeah. So with the skin trade, uh, so what's, what I mentioned in is kind of the scope of the issue. Like, uh, you know, are there, uh, you know, how big of, of an issue is this and kind of what's driving uh, that kind of supply demand equation for, for snake skins? I think that the scale of the skin trade um, has been and continues to be um, enormous. Um, that, you know, we're talking about millions of snakes that end up in the, in the skin trade, I, I suspect, on an annual basis. And that includes... You know, species like African rock pythons and Burmese pythons, reticulated pythons, and cobras are, are you know, are very um, significantly represented in the skin trade. 
um, as well as the the whip snakes and the rat snakes, the Asian rat snakes um, are are frequently used for things like uh, women's shoes. Um, elephant trunk snakes, another one, uh, Acrocordus, that is um, that, that shows up in the skin trade. And um, you know, I think that it's driven largely by fashion. There's there's nothing that um, says that um, you need um, <laughs> snake skins for leather. In fact, uh, I have found that it's not actually not not a great leather. In in fact, you know, it's thin. It's it's not nearly as as strong as as, uh, as uh, cow leather, for example. But um, it's appealing. It's 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 fashion, um, which is there's a benefit to that and that is fashion changes and um we it's not a it's not a necessity it's something that people just like to have and so it's something where i think behavior change is easier to accomplish if if we could get people to understand that um every pair of snakeskin boots means a, a couple of dead pythons and that pythons are are a good thing to have in the wild because they they control rodent populations, et cetera, um, that, that maybe we could uh, turn the tide on, on demand for, uh, for snakes as skins. Has there ever been a, a conservation effort? So, for example, I know uh, one of our partner organizations, Panthera, uh, works on uh, large cat conservation around the world. They've done some projects basically creating uh, like artificial or man-made large cat fur um, and trying to get that substituted. And obviously there are artificial or faux snake skin. Has there been any effort, uh, you know, in the, you know, kind of the wildlife trade conservation community to, to try to promote more artificial snake skin as, as looking just as good or is, is that not something that's viable? No, I think it's absolutely viable. And I think um, pushing people in that direction um, is is a good approach. And it's an approach that has been taken. And I, and I actually think with regard to snakeskin in particular, the faux um, snakeskin prints are actually quite good. Uh, you know, one of the bad habits that you create when you, that you form when you're a wildlife inspector is you can't stop looking for wildlife parts and products no matter where you are. And so, even, you know, a couple of decades later, when I walk through a mall and I see something that looks like a reticulated python pair of shoes or uh, a handbag or something, I immediately go to it to see, to see if, in fact, it's the real thing or not. And, and the faux stuff is, is actually really good. And I think that's a, a, a strong way to push people to, away from the real thing because I think the, the, the faux stuff is, is, is just as good and, and it, looks, it looks like the real thing. And, and I think we, we do see a lot of that now in the fashion industry, a lot more than we used to, a lot more use of, of faux products. So what's, the, what's some of the geography of the skin trade? Both meaning like what, where's the demand being driven from and where is the primary supply being acquired from? Yeah. Yeah, I think the supply is predominantly Southeast Asia, um, certainly with some of the pythons and uh, cobras and rat snakes. Um, that's a predominantly Southeast Asian supply. I think there's some supply from Africa. I think the quality of the product has not been as good, um, tanning methods, that sort of thing. You know, it, it's all about, um, it's all about money at the end of the day. And so it's about a ready supply 
It's about good processing. It's about the you know lowest um, costs with regard to production. And I think you have good tanneries in Southeast Asia and East Asia. You have a ready supply of snakes in Southeast Asia and East Asia. And I think that's the that's the primary supply. Um, certainly, other parts of the world uh, to some extent as well. Boas and anacondas from from Latin America, some of the pythons from Africa, um, cobras from, from Africa. But I think I, I, I would point primarily to Southeast Asia as the predominant supply. And then as for the demand, I would say it's, it's pretty global, certainly um, where there is more disposable income, because again, we're talking about what are predominantly luxury goods in the skin trade, at least. Um, you look to places that have more disposable income. Um, and that historically has been Europe and, and North America. But as we have seen the dramatic growth in economies in Southeast Asia and East Asia, that has been one of the most significant drivers of increased um, legal and illegal wildlife trade has been the increased um, buying power um, in places like China and um, Indonesia and, and uh, other countries in, in Southeast Asia. So you mentioned species. So you mentioned uh, some of the pythons and you mentioned cobras and then some of the uh, sounds like colubrids there in, in Southeast Asia. Just curious, are, what's driving the particular species? It's First of all, you mentioned a lot of species that are relatively large. Is it primarily the size of the snake? Uh, is there, there a reason for that? Does it have, um, you know, obviously if it's fashion driven, I'm, sh- I'm assuming the aesthetic of the skin, the, the pattern, what's dry, first of all, which species, and, and you kind of mentioned that, but if you want to touch on it again, feel free. And then what's, what's driving, why are these species the focus? Yeah, I'd say there are a number of factors there. One is is size, because the more, the larger the snake, the larger the skin, the more you you get from an individual specimen. Uh, one is pattern. Um, certainly, with a species like reticulated python, there's an a, there's an appealing pattern there. When you see faux snake skin, you often see Burmese python and reticulated python patterns, because that's that's what's appealing about them. Um, then for some of the colubrids, I, it's, I think it's primarily about availability. Um, and you see things like whip snakes and rat snakes that are used in women's shoes where they're, they're dyed. They're all, they're all dyed, you know, in a, a, a rainbow of colors. And so it's not about pattern. It's just about scale, um, uh, you know, yeah, being yeah. able to see the scale pattern. Um, that's what the, the demand is for those, for those types of skins. The other factor I would say is protection. Right. And so if a country, so a couple of levels uh, in that regard, one is, again, that international treaty CITES, um, all of the giant snakes are listed in what's called Appendix 2 of CITES, which means that um, commercial trade is allowed, but permits are required. And in order to issue a permit, you have to make a finding that this, this, the product is both legal and it was harvested sustainably. And so for pythons to enter international trade, you have to have these CITES permits and these that are backed by these findings. First, the, um, the rat snakes, generally speaking, we're talking about species that are not at all protected. And so there is a, there's less scrutiny over that trade. And um, so it's probably easier to conduct trade in, in say, um, the, the LAFI species than it is 
for um, some of the python species. Then for whip snakes, you have a bit of a mixed bag. Some of the species are, are protected um, or, or regulated under international trade and some are not. Um, Tyus mucosus is listed in the CITES appendices and some of the other whip snakes are not listed. And, and that's where it becomes really important to be able to identify these things, which is not hard to do when you have a whole skin. It's much harder to do when you have just a pair of stiletto heels. I, I can I can attest to that <laughs> firsthand, and so being able to identify um, Tyus mucosus from some other Tyus species um, becomes a bit more of a challenge when you've got you know three square inches and it's been dyed bright red. Oh, I can imagine. It's <laughs> quite a job you had. Well, I'm glad you mentioned CITES. I don't think we have time. We need to begin wrapping up here, but I would encourage um, all of our listeners, if you're interested in wildlife trade, if you're interested in skin trade, to, to do go online and look at CITES. The acronym is C-I-T-E-S. Um, it's really kind of a critical component to the story. Um, But I do want to begin wrapping up here, Craig. And the last question I have for you on the skin trade is, so you've worked in this arena, all all kinds of wildlife trade issues, um, the majority of your career, um, but relative to the skin trade, do you see a, a light at the end of the tunnel? Do you think that there are approaches that can be implemented that that kind of balance the needs and wants of the the people of the world and um, the needs of of wildlife? Or do you think it's a pretty grim uh, future for those species that are are the targets of the skin trade? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a challenge, it's, and it's been a challenge for decades. And I would say that if we could effectively implement CITES, the international agreement, um, such that every permit that was issued was in fact backed by a valid finding that the the animals were legally collected, and that it is sustainable given what we know about the population, then I would say that we could. Um, ensure that we have a legal, sustainable trade that does not harm wild populations and that provides value um, for the for the species and for the people who choose or who live with those species. Right? If we could if we, if we could um, provide value to local rural communities that live with these species. Um, we would um, we would be on the right track. Um, I, I would say it's a big lift in part because it's just tough to assess snake populations and determine what sustainable looks like. Um, and so I think we have to approach it conservatively with strict quotas and good enforcement. Thank you. So we both have a, a, a similar upbringing in some ways, and, and I want you to imagine that... Uh, that you've invited me up to your your family uh, hunting camp in uh, in Michigan, let's say, and uh, we're sitting around a campfire, and um, I'm sure you've heard and maybe told some some hunting or fishing stories around a similar situation. But I get just as excited about snake stories, so I want you to tell us your best snake story. <laughs> okay. I have a few. Um, I will go with um, ball pythons. And um, when I first started working as a wildlife inspector, it was when there was really a big trade in wild-caught ball pythons. 
and they would come in in shipments of, of at least a few hundred at a time from from West Africa, particularly from Ghana, Togo, and Benin. And um, I, I understood why ball pythons are called ball pythons because they like to roll up into a, a bit of a ball, and it, it, you know when they're they're feeling they need to be protected. But I didn't fully appreciate why they're called a ball python until I had to inspect those shipments because they would come 25 to a bag. And so, and these are, these are adults. These are four foot, you know, ball pythons and they're regulated. They're listed under CITES in appendix two. And so they have permits and the permits restrict the number of animals that are in the shipment. And so part of my job was to count ball pythons. And I can tell you that when you dump out a bag of 25 ball pythons, you have one big ball. And that ball has 25 heads <laughs> that are looking at you. Really all, I think, sort of wondering, okay, what are you going to do now, buddy? And so it was my job to untangle um, that ball to make sure that it was 25 and not 27. And so that is um, how I came to really, truly appreciate why they're called ball pythons. That's great. I love it. So, well, Craig, I, I know I've taken a lot of your time. Um, it's been a real pleasure uh, chatting uh, with you today about your career and, and the skin trade. So thank you for that. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And I just wanted to thank our audience and tell everybody to remember Snakes are animals too, and it's a privilege 